this effort will really help the field identify how we can help prevent mistreatment. The mashup of laboratory and collaborate. Part of what a number of leaders in this field who are also featured in this issue of Generations talked about was bringing quantitative objective measurement tools to elder mistreatment. Hello and welcome to Bylines, American Society on Aging's newest podcast, interviewing authors of articles you can find in Generations. I'm Peter Caldas, CEO, and welcome you to our first episode of Bylines. Today we'll be speaking with authors featured in our spring 2020 edition of Generations, which is on taking action against elder mistreatment. Rebecca Jackson Stokel is a vice president at the Education Development Center in Waltham, Massachusetts. Scott Bain is a program officer at the John A. Hartford Foundation in New York City. Scott and Rebecca, welcome to the inaugural episode of Bylines. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Peter. So you jointly authored the article called The National Collaboratory on Elder Mistreatment. Rebecca, can you get us started here and sort of share with us what you think uh, uh, elder mistreatment means? What, what does it mean to us? You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of uh, uh, conversation about about verbiage here. Is it, are we talking about elder mistreatment? Are we talking about elder abuse? Um, we like to say elder mistreatment because it it covers the broad range of incidents and issues that, that can affect older adults, ranging from financial uh, mistreatment, uh, physical, psychological, in rare but terrible cases, sexual mistreatment. All of those are encompassed in the work that we're trying to do. And in your article, you talk about how elder mistreatment uh, needs to be framed within the medical model. Could you explain why and what that means exactly? Sure. Uh, this is Scott. I will jump in and talk about uh, talk about that one. Part of what a number of leaders in this field, who are also featured in this generation of of uh, or this issue of generations talked about in the early days of their work was bringing the medical model to this issue, which largely meant bringing quantitative objective measurement tools to elder mistreatment. It was elder mistreatment was an issue that everyone had or many people in hospitals had an anecdotal sense that it was a problem, but not until bringing the tools of medicine to that were they was the field able to quantify it now that said this is not purely a medical issue rather we're it we're using the voice of medicine to be joined with that of the law with that of social service agencies that all of us come together to have a piece of 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 this puzzle of stopping elder mistreatment and Scott, why is quantifying so important here? Well, it's it's the same. 
it's as in quantifying in any field. It is it, it allows the field to so for example, we can now say with with certainty that there's a 10% prevalence rate of elder mistreatment. We the field did not used to be able to make that claim. It was it was murkier. And now this helps quantifying it, it helps helps raise the issue broadly to say to clinicians, this is happening and it's something we need to be on the lookout for. So, so can I can I jump in and, and just just add and amplify to that? Um Peter, you may know that we're we're now working with five clinical sites around around the country, and as part of our recruitment process, trying to understand you know find sites that would be interested in working with us on a on a feasibility test, we listened and learned a lot about why those sites might be interested, um, and we heard across the board something that really intrigued me. Staff would say things like, "We know we have patients who are being mistreated." coming into the emergency department, but we just don't know how to identify them, and when we identify them, we don't know what to do with them. So this business of quantifying, I think, it's hugely motivational. It makes the issue real, um, but it's not enough. It's a starting point because you need not only to recognize that the problem is out there, uh, and that it's been documented, but knowing uh, staff wanted and needed and institutions wanted and needed to know how could they effectively address it. And so much of this work in other contexts is guided by such uh, metrics and, and numbers and things that are reportable. I suspect this effort will really help the field identify how we can help uh, prevent mistreatment. So I want to turn to that. The National Collaboratory on Elder Mistreatment is is mentioned in this article. It's launched in this generation. So I'd love to. I love that word collaboratory. <laughs> Scott, can you tell us about it? Or Rebecca? I will. I, 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 I will. <clears throat> We have to tip our hat to our our friend and colleague Amy Berman at the John A. Hartford Foundation. Yeah. <laughs> she uttered that word for the first time in in my hearing, and I think it's a it's a it's a mashup of, of um, laboratory and collaborate, and that's a great representation of how we're working together. Over to you, Scott. I, and Rebecca, those were going to be exactly my words as to Peter, I joined this project midstream and have wondered about the word collaboratory as well, but the definition I came up with in my own mind, having sat in on a number of the meetings, is that it's exactly as Rebecca describes, that it's a combination of a collaboration and a laboratory. So Scott, could you share a little bit why the John A. Hartford Foundation chose to support this effort? Sure, I'd be happy to, thank you. As you or your listeners may know, one of the primary initiatives of the John A. Hartford Foundation is promoting age-friendly health systems. And one of the essential principles of age-friendly health systems is to do no harm. 
Age-Friendly Health Systems, it's a joint initiative among the Foundation, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the American Hospital Association, and the Catholic Health Association. And it's working to promote and implement the four M's in, for, in care for older adults. The four M's are what matters to the older adult and his or her family, medications, mentation, which largely means delirium, depression, and dementia, screening for those things, and mobility, sort of reframing mobility, not falls prevention by itself, but being able to remain mobile. Um, this is a this has been going on for several years now. There are age-friendly health health system sites in all 50 states, and but as I say, one of the initial initial principles of, of this effort is to cause no harm. Another reason for our interest in this area is that our president, Dr. Terry Fulmer, who is a nurse by training, is also a nationally recognized expert on elder, mis elder mistreatment, so that it's in concert with, with her background as well. So then let's turn to the collaboratory. Uh, Rebecca, you write with Scott that you're starting by assessing older adults for elder abuse in the emergency department. How did you start there? Well, we, you know, uh, when we were designing the model, we did a very careful ecosystem mapping to look at all of the touch points in an older adult's life and in their community where there might be an opportunity to interview. And we very quickly gravitated towards the emergency department because so many of our key informants noted that this is the one place where many vulnerable older adults who, who may not, um, you know, they may be isolated, they may be spending time largely with the trusted other who is mistreating them, but they, they do surface in the emergency department when they have a fall or when there's an acute exacerbation of, of, um, of an underlying illness. So that's one, one point. It, it's sort of a target-rich opportunity. Um, and the other is that emergency department staff are, by nature and training, um, do a really great job of quickly assessing what the problem is. And so we felt that... that um, we could we could uh, introduce training and resources that would help to leverage the, that existing skill set and those staff. So then let's talk a little bit about the model. You describe it as the elder mistreatment emergency department care model. Could you explain how it works and maybe even give us a, an example? Sure. Um, the care model has has four elements. I won't I won't go into detail about them because like we we set them out and we have a nice little graphic in the article. Um, but the, really, the heart of it is the the training of staff to screen and appropriately refer elder adults. Um, and we did a lot of uh, design work and early piloting and formative research that honed in on the, those screening tools. And at every stage of, of our research, what we heard from staff is make it leaner. Um, be sure and have this be as pragmatic as possible so that it can fit within existing workflows. So if an older adult comes into the emergency department in the sites where we're working, anybody over 65 is going to be screened with two simple questions. 
um, that have an evidence base that that uh, supports their their um, effectiveness in identifying um, whether they're a victim of, of of mistreatment. And in addition to those two short screening questions, the the staff also do a little bit of observational work, looking not only at the older adult, but if they are accompanied by a caregiver or a trusted other, they'll be looking to see, does this person seem disheveled or am I suspicious about um, substance misuse and so forth. If there's any positives on that initial short screen, um, the, the older adult is referred for what a deeper triggered screen, where staff who've had additional preparation and training really go through uh, a short physical exam, a longer list of questions, and really try to identify, is this someone who is either in immediate uh, risk for, for further mistreatment and we need to keep them here until we can um, find a, a safe place to refer or discharge them, or is it somebody that we, we want to um, alert Adult Protective Services uh, about because we think there's something suspicious going on. So the screening tools are, you know, built algorithmically to sort of walk through um, all of those possibilities. And at the end of, for those, you know, small subset, subset of people who are in need of, of follow-up care, um, we have what's called a community connections toolkit that helps the system itself to strengthen and deepen resources, um, relationships with resources in the community, like Adult Protective Services, but also with other older adult uh, serving entities like a, a area agency on aging, um, it might be a wheel, Meals on Wheels program, uh, it might be helping to form a multidisciplinary team that can really uh, figure out what to do with the toughest cases. And I know there are a number of states involved in this model, and I'm wondering how has it been received by the different sites and sort of how has the data, the data collection efforts uh, been so far? I'll take that. Um, we're working in five sites, New York, New Jersey, California, Texas, and North Carolina. Um, all of them are doing, uh, looking retrospectively to, to um, create a, a baseline of what they were doing in terms of screening and identification before the feasibility test. Um, and then, of course, they're tracking um, all of the screening that they're doing and the outcomes related to that during the feasibility test. Now, you know, to, to state the blindingly obvious, we, we started this feasibility test in uh, late December 2019. And uh, lo and behold, <laughs> long about the end of February, <laughs> Something happened in the world, and um, and COVID. I won't be coy about it. COVID nineteen hit all of the sites, and especially hit emergency departments. So, we were we were I would say fearful. We were apprehensive that the the test the feasibility uh, test would grind to a halt because people's attention was diverted. And you know what? That just absolutely hasn't happened. Our sites have continued to screen, to collect data. Um, and when we ask them about it, they very matter-of-factly say, um, we understand that in the midst of this global pandemic, 
elder mistreatment is continuing to happen. And in fact, it may be happening even more. Um, so, so the work continues. Uh, one wrinkle is that fewer older adults are coming into the emergency department. They um, are, are heeding the warnings that um, it's probably safer not to unless it's really urgent. And so our denominator, the number of adults that are being screened is dropping, but the staff is continuing to screen those older adults who do come in. Scott, I'm wondering, what do you see happening with the collaboratory moving forward? That's a great <clears throat> that's a great question. I in the best of all possible worlds, we, this would begin to attract both federal and and more private support to roll the pilot out to yet more sites and ideally inform how government uses its resources to better stop elder mistreatment. But also on a very basic level, yeah, issues continuing to have interviews like the one we're having now or conversations like the one we're having now, the issue of generations focused on elder mistreatment, that all of that helps to attract more public awareness to the issue. And that in itself is a great step forward. Well, I thank you, Scott and Rebecca, for your work, uh, not just for today's conversation, but also for your contributions to generations. Like you said, Scott, this work is, is extremely important uh, to amplify. Uh, and uh, we just want to thank you for participating in bylines today. And thank you to the ASA members for listening. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast online or through your app store to hear the next episode of bylines. Scott, Rebecca, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Peter.